Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. back. Thanks for joining me again. This week's episode is with Tyson Popplestone. Um, some people in the running world will remember Tyson. He was a Victorian mile champion, pretty handy uh, runner. Got a PB of 8.20, represented Australia at the World University Games and um, yeah, sponsored by Adidas at one stage there, raised Satapec. He's definitely been uh, in the prominent kind of eyes of athletics for a while there, but uh, not most, not much recently. He's uh, been off the off the scene for a while now, and he spent some time in London. And I've yeah, just been keeping a bit of an eye on Tyson's work and his work around kind of health and living a meaningful life. And he had his own podcast last year, and uh, yeah, had maybe forty so episodes, forty two episodes. Had some amazing guests on there, which we talk about. And yeah, I've been listening to his podcast and really wanted to get him on the show as a guest to have a bit of a conversation with and just talk about all things running and life and attempting to climb Mount Everest and just living a really meaningful life. You know, Tyson doesn't seem to be the guy that's uh, sucked in by money and how much you earn, but actually about how much fun and how much enjoyment and purpose and passion you're getting out of your life. And that's something I really uh, can relate to and really look up to uh, some of the risks he's taken in his life. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. He's an amazing uh, person to talk to and really easy to get the conversation going. So you can tell that he's had some experience on the other end of the microphone. I think you'll really dig this one. Thanks to all the people last week that reached out to Josh Harris. I, uh, I've had plenty of interactions on Twitter and Instagram and all those things and I really appreciate the fact that people took time out to do that. And, um, yeah, similar with Tyson this week. If you like it, reach out and, yeah, hit him up and tell him you heard him on Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Thanks, guys. Enjoy this one. All right, Tyson Popplestone, welcome to Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Thanks for joining me for a conversation. Man, it's good to finally talk to you again. It's been a long time. Yeah, I was just trying to think. I was uh, doing a bit of Googling of your journey the last uh, couple of days, and I think, I can't remember the last time I saw you, but maybe 2011, 2012, you were kind of hooking around pretty dominant on the running scene? It sounds about right. Uh, 2011, 2012 were probably my last really good years on the athletic scene. 2013 started to fizzle out again, 
and 2014 I took up a football career. So <laughs> I reckon that would have been around the last time I had a chat to you, man. Yeah, yeah, I just remember you smashing me in a couple of shorter races. I was uh, yeah, getting sick of looking at your back over some of those distances. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you emphasised the uh, the shorter distances because I uh, I know once it got to about 10k and beyond, I saw a fair bit of your back as well, which I got sick of. So I'm I'm glad you got those memories because I've certainly got a couple of you. <laughs> Beautiful mate. Do you mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience? Just feel free to take that in any direction you want. Yeah, cool man. So uh, Tyson Popplestone, uh, I'm married. Been married for six years. I was a runner. I'm not a runner anymore. I've started doing calisthenics, which is uh, like a manly version of gymnastics. Uh, just got back from London. I was there for two years with my wife, um, working with School Speakers UK, running some uh, personal development programs in a lot of London schools and, and other schools around the UK. Uh, so glad to be back in Australia. Just got back about two weeks ago and have decided I'm never leaving the country again. I'm currently very pasty, working on a tan, and uh, I'm glad I've got a couple of months left to do it. Yeah, beautiful. There's about 20 different directions we can go in that introduction, <laughs> but uh, let's start with the running because a lot of the listeners are running kind of people and they're probably just started their jog or something. And uh, yeah, let's go into take me back to the very start of the running career because you were in it pretty young, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I was really young. So it was funny when I was about uh, five or six years old, I, I loved my footy. So living in uh, in Victoria, the the footy world was a, was a big part of my world. So I got into that really young and, and played till I was about 13 or 14. The problem was when I was about 13 or 14, I hadn't grown and all those blokes around me that I was playing footy with had. So every time I got bumped and tackled, it started to hurt a fair bit. So I was trying to think of a, uh, a nice little excuse that I could make to get out of the football scene. And uh, it just so happened that I was pretty good in the running world and also just a little bit obsessed with fitness at that age. So I started I started just going for runs at, at lunchtime in like year seven and, and year eight and just having to run around the track in, in Western Australia and uh, it just pretty quickly started to really take a love for the sport. I just love the uh, the headspace you get when you get out of the track and um, just leave all the distractions behind and, and all your little stresses or whatever stresses you have in year seven behind and, and just get out on the track. And I remember my mum said to me, I was 13 years old, she's like, Tosh, you're pretty good at running. You should uh, you should enter the state champs that were happening in, in Western Australia. It's like, oh, yeah, enter me in, Ma. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll see how we go. So she signed me up for that and I don't know how many people were there, but there must have been 113 or 14-year-old blokes lined up for a race. Uh, I think it was around near the casino in, in WA. Anyway, I was so, so nervous because I just had absolutely no idea how it would go. And the gun went and sort of just ran along with the leaders. And about halfway through the 3K race, I thought, bloody hell, like I feel I feel pretty good. So I thought I'll try and lay it down a little bit. And uh, it, it started to open up a nice little gap. And, you know, we got to about 2Ks and... There's a nice gap behind me, and I just, just kept on rolling. Uh, I ended up winning that first state champs and deciding that, hey, it could be a pretty good little career move or sport move at least. So that was the beginning. State champs on debut. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad way to start. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Well, it's interesting you touched on WA because I can remember, like, were you down in, like, Gippsland, like, Trelgan running down there, Vic Countries maybe one year, and I know you were over at WA, and then some time in Ballarat. Like, you seem to be a bit all over the place going through the juniors there. Oh my gosh, man! I've I've been to so many different states. So uh, growing up, I was born in Trelgan down in Gippsland. Then when I was about eight, Mum and I moved over to WA, which is where that running career started. Then I moved back to Trelgan in Victoria when I was about thirteen or fourteen. And I reckon uh, two thousand and one, they had the state, uh, the country champs up in Bendigo. And I reckon I don't know if you were up there, but I, that could be the memory that you had. I was I was doing a few races around there. 
and uh, I've pretty much been a Gippsland boy ever since then, with a few little stints here and there in between. Yeah, I reckon I might have been a bit young for, yeah, 2001. I do remember maybe four years later I got uh, towed up by Matt Griffin in the 1500. He won it, I think I was second. He uh, absolutely smashed us all at the Vic Countries, but I think that was about 2005, 2006. Yeah, it's not a bad bloke to get smashed by, though. He was in pretty good form, I reckon, 2004, 2005. Yeah, yeah, he was uh, Yeah, he was pretty dominant there as well. But, um, yeah, so then, come on, take me through the like progression of running. So uh, just got better and better and just keep dominating the state stuff, or how'd that go? Honestly, it was a, it was a really strange journey through the running world for me. And it's funny now, after a couple of years out of the sport and having a bit of time to reflect on how it all went, it's really undulating, I think, if you looked at my progress. So, as I mentioned, the state champ at age 13, which I just thought I was I was you know, a hero in my own mind, which was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And then from about 13, I think the next year, so age 14, it was like my first serious year. I think I ended up running like 427 for 1,500 and 929 for 3K, which helped me qualify to get over to Melbourne for the Nationals. Uh, that was really good, but after about 14 to age 17, not much at all happened. I mean, I was training really hard, and I was doing all the right moves. I was training with a bloke called, uh, I don't know if you remember, Joe Carmby. He was a he was a really old bloke. He was about 80 when I started training with him, but he had a great reputation down here in Gippsland, and he was just a, he was just a big hero in my eyes. I loved the guy, and, and just his philosophy on the sport of running, just life in general, to be honest. So he took me under his wing. And he was always a big believer that when you have a big growth spurt, it takes a little while for your muscles to catch up a lot of the time. He says, so you're just like a big uncoordinated giraffe-looking mm. kid trying to run around and figure out how to use your muscles in a way that actually gets you around the track in any pace that's you know impressive at all. And he reckons for that three years, so for like 14 to 17, I was that little giraffe kid that just couldn't <laughs> figure out how to use his legs because there wasn't a whole heap of progress in the in the times. And then I reckon... I remember at age 18, I was down at Olympic Park and, uh, like, our school used to have a competition called Icy's, and I reckon I was racing Brenton Rowe and Matt Bailey, and my PB for 3K was, like, 9.10 at the time. So over the three years, I'd only taken about 19 seconds off my time. And then that day I lined up, and I just remember I'd come into, I was coming into some good form, and uh, I took about 16 seconds off the time again. So 8.54, it was the first time under 9. Uh, it was just a really good little breakthrough for me, and it sort of—I think it might have even kept me in the sport because there was a while there was I was where I was really thinking, you know, how much is the effort really worth it? So I was putting in a bit of effort there, and then I guess from there, the next three years had some pretty solid breakthroughs. I think the age of 21 or 22, I, I snuck under 350 for 1500, which was just a nice ground speed for someone who considered himself a bit more of a long distance runner. Um, ended up running. I'll skip to 22. 22, I reckon, was my last big good year. So that was um, 2010, and I ran I ran 8.10 for 3K pretty much to kick off the season. Um, yeah, where'd you do that? Was that at like a Vic Miles or something? When I was looking at your PBs before, I'm like, 8.10, that is moving. <laughs> yeah, they have the, uh, the New South Wales 3K. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it was a race that I don't know what I love so much about it, but it was just a... a it felt like a low-key race, I think, because you were out of the state and you were out of sort of everyone's attention. You could just, you know, roll the dice a little bit and see how you were going. And that was just a really good year. I remember, um, I remember starting off, and I just I went into the race with so much confidence and just I was just so relaxed as well. I was going in, and I knew I could do something good if I 
you know, strung it all together. And long story short, I went through with a lap to go in about seven ten, I think it was, and I was thinking, oh, far out, like one more lap. And, and Courtney Carter, another West Australian bloke, was a few steps ahead of me, and I thought, oh, I've got to try and catch him. And I just, I just put the hammer down. It just seemed to, to all click. You know what I mean? And that was a, that's probably one of my big highlights. The, the 2010 3000 meter champs. Well, did you win it? Like you would have been close, wouldn't you? No, I reckon from memory, James Nipperus won. He won, and he, he absolutely smoked us. He was in the speaking about seeing people's backs. I could barely even see his. He was so far ahead. I reckon he ran 7:55 or 7:56. And then Brett, I think Brett Robertson. Hey, he's dropping some pretty good names here. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I was in some good company. Yeah, yeah. no wonder was, they're beating you. <laughs> it was James Nipperus. There was Brett. I, I was fourth. I can't remember who was second or third, but I reckon Robbo ran about eight oh four that day. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a nice little race. It was a good breakthrough for him as well. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. And then like I just looked at your PBs, like fourteen twenty four over the five k, thirty fifty eight, and a win at Melbourne ten k at on the marathon day and. Yeah, just to give the listeners some content, context, you were the uh, Vic Mile champion in 2011 and kind of sponsored by Adidas at one stage and World Cross Country uh, University champs over there in 2010. So you really kind of got to some pretty high levels. Yeah, there's some nice races. You mentioned a couple of those. They were all around 2010, 2011. And uh, I've always struggled with, with uh, this, this is the most random little detour, but I think it's an important little detail. I struggled heaps with, with sinusitis. I had a whole heap of sinus issues and just constant fevers and just I always seemed to be getting sick. And I remember 2010, early that year, I had a sinus operation and all the symptoms just cleared up. And I reckon that could have led to a couple of the big breakthroughs because my training was going a lot easier. I wasn't so uh, – like uh, I used to wake up with these really bad sweats and fevers and just – you know that feeling when you feel like you're getting the cold or, or yeah. the flu? just buggered. I had a lot of those moments. And in 2010, all cleared up got the sinus operation. Then some of the symptoms mid-2011 started to come back, and I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to get another operation, I think. So I went in there and, and got round two, and wasn't long. Six months later, I reckon a whole heap of the symptoms started to come back. And my surgeon, the, the guy who was doing all the operations, said, mate, look, you're going to have to line up for a third operation. And I was pumping antibiotics, and I was just trying to figure out, you know, because running was my world at this stage. I was just trying to figure out how I could break through to the level that I was trying to compete. And it seemed that this... Um, these operations were the only way to do it. And my, my wife's grandma had been saying to me for about two years, Tice, you're allergic to dairy, mate. Get off the milk. It'll fix everything. And I was like, okay, okay, old lady. Yeah, like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I've got a doctor here. He's, uh, I'm paying him good money to fix me up. He's giving me all the antibiotics. And long story short, I was just about to go under again for a third operation. I thought, this is bullshit. Like, surely these guys should have figured something out by now. And they're not. Then I'm not convinced they know what's going on. So I thought, all right, I'll try. I'll try Granny Lynn's theory and get off the dairy for for a couple of months, which I did. And within a month and a half, a heap of the symptoms had cleared up. A heap of the problems that I'd been having were were just gone. Went back to the surgeon. He said, "Oh, mate, yeah, like your yeah, your sinusitis has cleared up. Doesn't look like you need the the therapy uh, the the surgery." Um, he wasn't too interested in what cured it. I think he was just sad he wasn't getting extra five grand mm. to fix. It. <laughs> but. Uh, but that was sort of a, a nice little breakthrough. But then I think around that time, because it, it's only on, in hindsight that I've been able to see what I think was holding me back. And because there had been three and a half years at this stage of just no progress, I'd pretty seriously considered a few times just hanging up the spikes and, and going back to my first love in footy. Um, 
And I think by the time I'd cured the, the actual problem, I'd, footy had already sort of won me over. I, I'd sort of forgotten a little bit about the running world, which is what happened there. Well, it was funny. You were kind of in that weird position where you were you're good enough to dominate kind of um, the sub-elite kind of tier stuff, but then you're not making world champs or Olympics or anything like that, and that jump was a huge one to try and make. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I was, I was on, on that kind of mindset. I'm probably a little bit like you like yourself like you obviously want to get the best out of yourself and I couldn't even say I was getting the best out of myself um, on a club level during those later days in sort of 2012-2013 and I'm the kind of guy that when I started running and all through my running career I had a real belief in my, my talent my ability to be able to run at a higher level and I always had this deep down belief that you know I could qualify for the Olympics or Commonwealth Games or just the world champs and things that you'd mentioned then and I think when I started to see that, that dream really slipping in a big way and I couldn't quite put my finger on what was going on, I think that's where a lot of the uh, motivation to keep going with the sport sort of slipped by and that's where I, that's where I let it go because the idea of, uh, for me, just dominating a, a club level it was never really something that, that excited me that much. I was probably too caught up in you know the profile of being an Olympian or whatever at that stage and uh, maybe my ego got too far in the way from me just enjoying the sport for what it was, but... Looking back, that's pretty accurately what I reckon sort of, uh, you know, stripped away my motivation. Yeah, and was there a clean-cut moment where you're just like, all right, running's done, or was it just gradually you just fell out of love with it? You know what it was? It's probably the same as another 35 middle-distance runners. When Mark Blissab's got drafted to Geelong, I thought, hang on, did I beat him? (laughs) He was second to you in that mile, wasn't he, when you won the state champs? He was. was. I didn't think about the fact that he was a foot taller and just had a couple of little little things that might be more valuable on the football field. But to be honest, man, like uh, it was a gradual, gradual process. So he got drafted and um, well, that must have been 2011 or 12. So I was still just, I was a pretty passionate runner at that stage and I was still fully believing in what it was that I was trying to chase down. And um, I think when he got drafted, this that, that little idea sort of sparked up in my mind because my dad was a good footballer um, back in the day down at Footscray, just in the uh, the seconds, I think, or the, the VFL yeah, version, yeah. whatever it was. And he always had some pretty good contacts. In my younger years, he goes, mate, like, are you sure you want to go down the running world? I can give you a couple of good contacts to give you a crack with some footy clubs. And I never took it seriously because I was like, dad, this is my thing. I want to be a runner. And then... So I was 26 or 27 when I finally decided that, oh, okay, running's not working, but the level that I'm running at could still look pretty good on a footy field or footy training. So I thought, okay, I'll make that transition. But I think that all that conversation led up to, to one big moment where I thought, all right, stuff it. What I'll do, I'll write a letter to every AFL football club and I'll just say, look, here's my story. This is what I do. Um, running's not going great, but I reckon I could be pretty good on a footy field. And um, Paul Roos, who was the Melbourne coach at the time, just I was sitting in my lounge room having a coffee and my phone rang. I picked it up. I was like, yeah, hello. And he goes, mate, it's Paul Roos. And I was like, yeah, what? Like, what are you, <laughs> Roosie, like, good to talk to you. You got my letter. He goes, mate, I like it. I'm, I'm interested. And I was, like, my heart skipped a beat. And I was sort of, because I just never thought when I posted the letters anything serious would happen. So had you but, played since, like, 13, like, at all? <laughs> no, I hadn't played at all. could just run. Uh, I just ran, man. So uh, I had a bit of a chat with him, and he goes, "Mate, come and have a talk with us, because because um, we sort of like we like the the proposal you put forward or whatever." So I went and sat down with um, him and uh, another former player called Todd Viney and one of the recruiting agents down there, and, and sat with him for about an hour, and they were sort of asking me about 
you know, the, the running world and what they saw in myself as a uh, sorry what I saw in myself as a footballer. And I was training with Box Hill Hawks, the VFL club at this stage. So I thought, uh, like I had a little bit of a story to put forth and say, look, this is this is the level that I'm, you know, training at, whatever. I'm improving quickly. Um, and they said, look, mate, it's it's going to be hard because they were looking at a, a bloke from New Zealand at the time, and he was a lot younger. I think he was 19 or 20. So as an elite level draft, he seemed a bit more of a, a, you know, a more positive pick in terms of longevity when you're just looking at numbers. So. Uh, he called me back a, a, about a week late. I, I left the room. I thought, fire out. I'm playing for Melbourne. This is ridiculous. Yeah. My mum, I go, mum, the interview went amazing. Like, uh, you wouldn't believe it. They're interested, whatever. And uh, so we were all doing little fist pumps thinking, fire out. I could be a, I could be a little demon. And uh, anyway, a week later, Todd, uh, sorry, it was, I, I can't remember who called me. I think it was Todd Viney. Um, and he said, mate, unfortunately for you, we've, we've given this New Zealand bloke a crack. Um, which, to be honest, in, in fairness to him, was a, was a great decision. I think he was a younger bloke and um, sort of slipped through the fingers. But then um, Fremantle Football Club also called me, and I was like, bloody hell, come on, Ty, don't stuff up this opportunity. Long story short, I went and had a kick with a couple of the, the recruiting boys down there, and I think the age was just a big factor for them. They weren't interested after that. Um, they said, mate, we thought you were a little bit younger. We thought we might have been able to work with it for a bit longer. And it just didn't quite work out. So I went back down to Box Hill, um, and trained with him for a pre-season, and, and was the very last cut, which, <laughs> which, I, was, which I was shattered about yeah. the last training session. And uh, I was talking to the captain. I said, Bella, uh, I said uh, Dave Mirror was his name. Uh, I said, Dave, mate, I think I'm gone tonight because I'd had a couple of chats with the coach in the lead-up to all this. And he's like, nah, not possible, Tyus, not possible. But I think my uh, my running was good, but just uh, I missed out on too much skill with those footballs, and apparently kicking and marking a footy is really important. Yeah, that would help. Um, do you reckon it was a bit of an ego thing, like getting involved with footy and seeing Blickars do it as well? And, you know, you can be the 10th best runner in Australia and nobody knows you, whereas the shining light of an AFL possible career um, is pretty appealing to you? Oh, bloody oath, 100%. And the more I look back, the more I realise it. I think... Um, I think just the idea of, of being in the spotlight when I was when I was a younger guy just really excited me, and it was something that I think really drove me a lot. Um, so I think a, a lot of my efforts were, were like what you just said. I thought, hey, there's a little bit of money in footy. There's a little bit of attention. Um, running's not going as well as it probably could. So I think those things, uh, that sort of definitely inspired me a little bit more to consider it and, and take steps towards getting involved in it. Yeah, and then the next time I think I saw your name in – in the news was she popped up on the AFL footy show with this quest to climb Everest. Oh, my gosh. It's, yeah, so... <laughs> you just kept popping up everywhere. Like, I haven't seen this guy running for two or three years, but AFL careers, Everest, and, yeah, we'll keep going to other stuff after that. Oh, my gosh. So this is... I, I'm sitting here. I know I haven't got the camera turned on, but I'm shaking my head just laughing because I was just... I think when I hung up the spikes, I put so much effort into running over the years and to, to, to just trying to reach a level that I thought I was capable of in that area that I thought once I left it there was just a big there was just a big void in my life where I was like shit what do I fill this with what do I do I remember I'd get home on a Tuesday afternoon where I would usually be down uh, training with the boys at the tan and I was sitting there going I don't I don't know what to fill this time with I'm not going to go running because I've just stopped doing that um so I thought okay well I'll, I'll try and fill it so I tried to fill it with footy and when that didn't quite work out I thought oh well what else could I do <laughs> So I thought, you know what, I had a cousin at the time who was really interested in just going to Nepal and, and considering climbing Everest. But the problem with Everest is 
unless you're absolutely loaded, you need about a hundred grand in your pocket, um, which you have to pay up front in order to be able to even be considered to climb. That's to cover the Sherpas and the accommodation and uh, food, and obviously they get a little bit of a profit and whatever else, flights. So I thought, okay, if we're going to do it, we have to do it in a big way. So my challenge was, okay, how do I get enough attention to my name that sponsors and media and whatever would be really interested in sharing my story, even though Everest has been climbed 100 times? Because my problem was I, I had 100 bucks to my name. I needed another 990,000, you know, 900,000. Yeah. Um, so I thought, okay, I've got I've to try and figure out a way that I can – can get my name out there enough for actually want to get a brand to pay me to put their name on my shirt. And I was at a barbecue one night and uh, uh, talking about this Everest idea. And one of my mates said, you should contact the footy show. I said, oh, yeah, what do you mean? He goes, well, they always used to take the piss out of Gary Lyon. How he, do you remember that injury he had where he's carried off on a street? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They go, why don't you take Gary's lowest moment to the world's highest moment? Just put it out as a proposal and then if you get your name out on the footy show, obviously it has a, however many hundreds of thousands of people watch that, then some companies will start to take you seriously. So I thought it was a roll of the dice because I'd had no mountain climbing experience. I didn't even know if I liked it. But I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I, I need to bloody get some attention. So I wrote a letter to the, the uh, what do you call it, the director or, or marketing manager or whatever, or the guy who puts the, the footy show together. I said, mate, here's my idea. This is what I'm trying to do. What do you think? And he goes, hey, I love it. Let's do it. And I, I again, it was another moment. I was like, "What are you? I can't believe this." So we were getting ready. I was going to be on the footy show in about three weeks after that, and then the the earthquake in Nepal struck. I don't know if you remember that. The start of twenty fifteen. Yeah, it's massive. It was yeah, massive earthquake, and and I think I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of people were killed, but it was it, it was just tragic. It was terrible what happened. And and the guy called me back, and he goes, "Obviously, and, and totally understood. He's like, we can't do it. Um, contact us later in the year." So I contacted him later in the year um, and said, mate, we're still thinking about this Everest trip. I still need some help if you're interested. I'd love to you know, partner up with you guys. So he got me on the show and said, all right, uh, what we're going to do instead, team up with Sammy, uh, Sammy Newman, take the piss out of him a bit, um, and then uh, you know, we'll just see how that goes. So we did that. All went well. A couple of sponsors got on board, um, MacPack and uh, Acquire Learning in Melbourne. And they were both – MacPack was going to be the gear provider and and Acquire Learning were going to hook me up with some cash. Not all the cash, but, you know, probably a good chunk. Um, so I went to – because I'd never climbed before, I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to go over to Nepal with a, a really well-respected company and, and just try and uh, try and climb a few mountains. So I had to – the rule was I had to climb two. And if I climbed two mountains, I was able to qualify to go with – them in April of 2016, um, and, and in all honesty, it was supposed to be a pretty straightforward experience. They said like my fitness was good and um, climatized really well, but I got there, and before the first mountain, I had a bowl of porridge, which was just a, a real dodgy bowl of porridge, <laughs> and I was just I was vomiting, and I just got the worst. Wor- I've got the anyone who knows me knows I got the weakest stomach in the world, and I just got the worst bloody food poisoning which just I, I couldn't even climb that first mountain, which meant that qualifying for 2016 was just off the cards, um, which was a pain in the ass after a year's work and training and, and putting my name out there like a, you know, like a big hero to try and get some money. Um, but we got up the second mountain uh, with a couple of the boys and, 
they said, unfortunately, like he got up the second mountain, which was called Mount Lobache. It was, I think it's 6,300 metres high. And uh, it was, but it was just game over. It was too late because it was pretty clear cut from the time that we started that if you didn't get up the two, you uh, you weren't going to be climbing the following year. And I'd already promised my wife that, you know, regardless of how Everest went out uh, or how Everest happened, uh, whether I climbed it or not, that we would move to London together in, in 2016, which was, a, which was a big goal of hers. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the training in November uh, came and went and just didn't quite work out the way that I'd anticipated. And then that pretty much just put the brakes on the whole Everest mission as well. But uh, but we finished it off with a pretty nice London trip, which was nice. Yeah, right. How do you cope with that disappointment, though? Like, obviously, you're making it real high profile. So you got more people on your back and it's not just you going away on a weekend and trying it with, you know, by yourself with all doors shut kind of thing. Like, what were your coping mechanisms like? To be honest, I think uh, I think the biggest thing for me at that time was I was just a little bit embarrassed. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I've, but I knew it was a roll of the dice from the time I started. I knew that in order to to try and do something this big, you're gonna, especially having never done it before, which in hindsight is is just it may be ridiculous, but maybe maybe a little little bit cool as well. <laughs> but I uh, I was obviously really disappointed, um, really frustrated. But I think I remember sitting in Nepal after the whole trip had happened. I was in Kathmandu at a little cafe having a Nepalese tea, and I was reading um, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. And he was speaking about how it's so important to have clarity in your life on what you actually really value. Otherwise, you get caught up in a million ventures and and never really focus on mastering one. And I I, I sort of I got got smacked in the face with that comment because I looked back at the last three years and I think running was the the last one that i'd been fully committed to and then as we said football was was maybe a little bit of a spotlight excitement thing and then everest was like oh crap what do i fill the void with and i'd never really taken some time to consider okay where is it that my talents line up with my passions line up with a need um so i just was filling the void with whatever i could so i I think though it was frustrating it was a real clarity moment for me it was okay tice like you've you've put a lot of time and effort and sacrifice into to making this happen it hasn't quite worked out for you. So, hey, how about rather than just committing to the next thing, how about you get really clear on exactly what it is that you would like to uh, practice, what it is you would like to put your time towards, what it is that you would like to create. And I think it set a really nice foundation for, you know, what's it been, the next three or four years uh, since then, just to be really focused on a few particular things rather than a million things uh, that I was just dabbling in. Yeah, and just jumping at opportunities kind of quickly. But what did that process look like? Like, did you do a lot of journaling or did you have a good mentor and sit down with them? Or, like, how did you kind of nut out what it was you wanted to do next? Yeah, I think a little bit of all of the above. I've, I've always been a, a big fan of your self-help books and, and just listening to the mindset guys like Tony Robbins and, um, yeah, man, there's a million people out there now, like your Tim Ferriss and yeah. your... Gary Vaynerchuk and I, I just I like listening to people's ideas and I also come from a, a, a well I became interested in the in the spiritual scene uh, when I joined a church in 2007 or something I was going through a phase there where there were some great mentors in the church and they just seemed to have a, a bit more clarity and a, a better perspective on a lot of the situations I was in than than what I had so I think just taking some time to speak to people who are older than me and who had been through some uh, failures and they would you know reach really high and fallen really hard i think that was really helpful um i've always been interested in in the role that mindset plays on on performance as well and just in general well-being i remember since a young kid i was 
I was always interested that the best athletes in any field were never just the most talented. They also seemed to have this incredible capacity just to get their their head in the right space for the big moments. And I was always curious about, like, what was that? What is it about uh, these guys' heads that just allow them to line up like that? So I knew and I know that in all of these situations that mindset plays a massive role on how you're going to interpret the the highs and the lows because I think if I'm honest, looking back, I can already see just after a couple of years that uh, some of those failures, as cliche as it was, were were the launching pad for some of the things that I'm really passionate about now. Um, So I think just reading and reminding myself of of what's really important to me um, were were probably some of the keys in me, not just overcoming it, but feeling as though I grew a whole lot from it as well. Yeah, right. And the move to London, like, do you have any say in that or you're just uh, tagging along with the wife? Well, that actually, uh, that actually was something that we had been speaking about for about four or five years. So uh, obviously when I was in the running scene, it wasn't something I was interested in because I had the group and uh, that I was yeah, training. Routines, all that kind of stuff, so important. 100%. It was just comfortable. So we, uh, we'd been speaking about that for a while, and I, I was excited because I'd been doing some, uh, some uh, I, I guess, performance coaching or, or just helping out in high schools with personal development programs. And uh, a, a company um, in in London called School Speakers UK got onto me and uh, well, I told them a little bit about what I was doing. They got it back to me and said, "Mate, we'd love to have you join here." So it was a nice little career move. It was a nice opportunity to take some of my stuff to a, another place and see how schools in you know the UK responded to to some of the lessons that I'd been speaking about here for a little while. And it was also just a great opportunity to team up with Jesse, my wife, and and just travel around a little bit. We got no house or kids or anything just yet and, and she'd for years been so patient with me as I'd just been going through the running motion so I thought okay the least I can do is yeah, team up with her and, and get back over there and, and travel around so that was a that was an absolute blast man but yeah, so bloody good to be back yeah good move so talk me through that like role working in schools like were you, you are you a qualified teacher uh, yeah yeah, yeah, I so, so, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a qualified primary secondary school teacher which I, I qualified for in 2012 and taught um in both full-time roles and part-time roles since 2012. Um, but as I mentioned, I was uh, I got involved in a church in about 2007. Uh, I was more interested in the psychology of it all. I was interested in that spiritual world, and I'd heard some really switched-on teachers share some really good lessons. And I think just out of convenience, the Christian church was the one closest to us. So I thought, you know what, I'll go and check this out. And as a result, uh, started to get more and more involved there. And, and we started to run some programs in schools that weren't preachy, they weren't, or in your face, hey, look, let's all be Christian. They were just really practical, simple, just just transformative lessons that I wish I had been taught when I was 12, 13, 14, you know, anywhere in my teens. Um, so we started to do that in schools around Melbourne, um, and, and it went really well. We were in about uh, seven or eight different schools on a weekly basis, and, and uh, the kids were responding really, really well to it. But long story short, the, the church closed down that program but I was I was shattered because that was like my my real passion and and being a bloke who's always been interested in psychology and mindset and just the relationship that has with just your, your day to day life um, I was shattered because I felt like that was an area where my skills really lined up with with a need um, so when that closed down in 2012 or 13 I ended up just calling a couple of these schools and I go look I've never never done this by myself before but I feel as though I've got some some helpful tips that I'd love to be able to share with you know some of the younger kids that I wish I had known. And because I had a relationship with these schools, they said, mate, like, let, yeah, let's get on board. Let's just do something. 
So I started just to go back into these schools just as an individual and just at an assembly or just to a year nine group or a year 10 group, just start sharing a few different strategies that I'd found helpful to deal with anxiety and depression, which, as you know, man, you're a teacher as well, aren't you? Yeah, I am. And, you'd, and you know, for someone who's always worked in schools, you'll love when people can come in with a passion and just give the kids like a, a different voice that they're not used to hearing and someone that comes in with energy. Like I could just imagine you coming in and really bringing your A game. Yeah, well, I definitely try. There's definitely been a couple of days there where I probably bought my B or C game, <laughs> but try to bring my try to bring my A game. But there was um, yeah, there was just a really a, a really positive response to to that. And I thought, hang on a second, like this is something I'm even more interested in than than teaching. And and man, this is probably the the thing that I'm as passionate about, if not more passionate than when I was running. So I started to go in there and just gradually just build the network. Word gets around and the schools have you back if you do a good job. And um, the, the kids have been really positive and, and, and really responsive to the lessons that I was speaking. And as you say, it's just nice to have a, a fresh voice, someone other than the, the same teacher every day trying to tell you these things. So from there, man, it just it, it gradually grew and grew. And I thought, fire out, like this could be a full-time thing. This could be something that I do. And uh, I sort of stumbled upon it in, in all seriousness. And then uh, when the opportunity came up in London just to keep going with this and travel around with Jesse at the same time, I, I thought, well, what a perfect opportunity. So that's pretty much been the been the focus for the last few years, man, and, and something that I've, I've got back into in a big way, um, you know, or getting back into in a big way for, for 2018. Yeah, and I think it's, um as you said, you kind of stumbled across that market. Like I know working in schools, you're always getting these pamphlets and faxes and stuff, like offering these guest speakers, but yeah, half the time they're uh, not really engaging or not real motivating and maybe from an older person that's uh you know living in a different world than the kids at you know 12 or 13 that what i'm used to dealing with yeah it's so true i remember we used to have people come into our assemblies um and, and just speak to our year levels and it was always something that i dreaded because i don't know who was choosing the speakers that we had come to our school but they were doing a shit job <laughs> so um, we would go to these we would go to these uh presentations and everyone would just be counting down the minutes until they finished and um, I don't know how much money these blokes were getting paid, but it, it was just a, it felt like a waste of everyone's time. And that's not to be harsh on them. I just feel like what you just said, it was, there was a, a really big gap between the person doing the speaking and the students who were listening. It was like we just couldn't quite click. So I always promised myself that if this is something that I'm going to do, I've got to, you know, I've got to stay in touch with these kids and I've got to try and figure out how to relate with these guys. And that's what I try and do with these talks, man. It's, it's, um, I always say it's just really simple practical life changing strategies that I like to combine with passion and a bit of humor and there's laughs and tears and just a combination of all of the above um, when I go and speak which is I, I just like the feeling of when you're in an audience of being kept on your toes and not knowing what's coming next um, so I like to try and bring that a little bit to these students so it's a it's something they really enjoy rather than something they have to endure like a lot of us did. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that money thing because just working in schools, I know like each year the school's got a budget for so many incursions or guest speakers and half the time their schools have just got to spend the money for the sake of spending it. So they don't really mind what they're spending it in. So there's kind of a yeah massive opportunity for people to get in there and uh, make the most of that kind of money that's getting thrown around. But what kind of topics are you talking about with these kids when you go in there? It's really broad, man. I always say um, that when you try and when you try and simple sort of just simplify what it is that I speak about. Essentially, it's building better minds. It's it's trying to help close the gap between where people are and, and where they would like to be. Which it sounds a bit self-helpy, sounds a bit inspirational speaker, but uh, I, I like the idea of just providing these simple strategy in in a whole heap of different fields, man. So uh, 
my most popular one is is purely on mindset, and, and that, for example, I look at uh, it's like an overview of everything that I look at. So it looks at a few strategies like uh, uh, how to change your focus in a way that allows you to feel better about your day. I mean, a lot of us go around feeling rubbish about ourselves, or, or, or just feeling as though we lack confidence or, or insert whatever it is that we struggle with. And a lot of it's a focus issue. So, so many of us will go through our day um, and, and we've all been in that situation where we, we're in a conversation and we say something dumb and everyone laughs and you look like a bit of an idiot. And, and most of us, we leave that situation and go, oh, I'm such a dickhead. Like, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe I've done that again. Like, why do I always do that? And uh, I think one of the most powerful things there is um, just the capacity we have to change our focus. So, I always speak to these students about the fact that it's our questions that dictate our focus. So um, in that situation, the example I just gave, a lot of us would leave that, as I said, and be like, oh, why am I such a dickhead? I always stuff up. Why do I do this? So our brain's wired in a way that will just try and search for that answer. It's wired in a way to, to, to try and find an answer. So it might be like, oh, you know, I've always been like that. My, my parents didn't bring me up or whatever. Yeah. But I think one of the most effective ways and, and one way that a lot of the kids that I work with find really helpful is just changing that question. So um, and this is something I used through the whole Everest and football and, and running experience. It's like, okay, well, what's a more effective question? You can ask yourself, uh, what is it that can take this from this situation that's actually going to enhance my performance uh, next time around? And, and it automatically just sends your brain on a completely different route. It takes you on a route that's positive and it leaves you with an opportunity to grow rather than just making you feel like shit. So uh, I think focus is a really big thing. Um, I also speak about health and goal setting and there's really no limits to what I speak about, man. I just think I, I try and share tools and strategies with kids that if I had have known when I was 14 or 15 years old, it, it would have made my uh, sort of my selection or my career choices or, or just my general direction a little bit easier to follow. Yeah, and I know you've been pretty honest and open about speaking about your battles with anxiety, and I think that's a really good thing, like showing that you're a bit vulnerable and you're not invincible when you're up the front talking to a group of kids. Yeah, that's what I always say. I think that the platform that I have in front of a group of kids is purely born out of the fact that I, I really wish I had a 30-year-old bloke telling me this stuff when I was 14 or 15 because as a, as a young fella, I, um, I have no idea whether it's just a personality trait or, or whether it was a combination of the way I was using my mind, but I was just a, I was an anxious little guy. Just from You look at videos of me even when I'm five or six, and I look at myself and just laugh in embarrassment now because just everything I did, I was bloody on edge and a little bit nervous and I just look at it and laugh now because I'm just I, – I, I just think I just uh, assumed that was part of my personality. It was something I was going to be stuck with forever. So as a young guy, I just was like, okay, this is just me. Um, I'm an anxious guy. I guess just, just deal with it. And I had no idea that other people dealt with it. So I, I try and be really honest with that now because I, I, I can usually say that anxiety, it, it's not a big struggle. It's a part of my life, but it's uh, no more than it's a part of everybody's life. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I think just having someone in front of the room to say, hey, I've been through it, I've, I've come through it, and, and I'm better off because of it, and here's some strategies that I use that will help you. It's, sort of, it's not only uh, inspiring, I think it's just really comforting for a, for a young kid to hear that they're not going through whatever it is they're going through alone. Yeah, yeah, and I guess now like you're bringing this to Australia, like this is what you're doing when you're back home? Yeah, man, so I was doing it, I was doing it uh, in Australia even before I left for London, um, but I just think the experience and, and just the opportunities that I've had in London have, have just opened up a, a lot more doors. So a few schools have, um, have obviously heard about the work and they've come across the blog or the website and they've become more interested. I think like anything, it's like that snowball effect. When I started out, it was just a couple of schools and, and, and just gradually it's just built up to a, a place now where um, 
you just get a couple of schools from interstate or a, a lot more schools locally, especially where I think just word seems to get around uh, uh, getting on board. I think it's just been a big patience game, to be honest. At the start, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is hard work. Um, but it's just nice to see that the, the impact's having enough of a result that, that people are becoming interested in it. Yeah, talk me through like the behind the scenes of that kind of stuff. Like I just know trying to launch this podcast and get it off the ground and you mentioned you've uh, listened a bit to Gary V about his always spreading the message about grinding away behind closed doors and it's not all glamorous and all those kind of things. But yeah, were there some times where you kind of uh, were challenged by how much work you're putting in and where you were possibly getting nowhere at times? Oh, man, 100%. Actually, I'd be really sorry to flip it on you, but I'd be really interested to hear some of your experiences with the podcast because I had a podcast last year as well. Mate, I'm waiting for episode number 43 to come out. We're going to get to that. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Stuck on on 42. (laughs) Fantastic. So there was a – man, we'll get to that in a minute. But I think, yeah, the behind the scenes, the grind, I I think it's just the same in in any sort of environment. Like you know more than most people that you want to perform well um, in your half marathon run 67 minutes, you're going to have to do a whole heap of training in the background. And there's a lot of hard work that goes before the glamour on race day. And I think some of the hardest stuff for me is I, I hate admin, man. Like it's just a, it's probably the thing I'm least passionate about in this whole life. And it just so happens that the foundation of what I do is, is a whole heap of admin because no one cares um, if I've got anything to offer them, if they, they don't know who I am or they don't know what it is I'm about. And I think, just trying to figure out how to get the word out there has always been a really hard part of this role because you, you don't want to just cold call a school or cold call a company and go, "Hey, I'm Tyson. I'm I'm trying to get this started. Can I come and can I come and talk to you?" And they go, "No. Like we've got a million other options of people we actually want." So I think I think the hardest lesson for me in the because uh, I'm not the most patient bloke walking around when it comes to things that I I'm passionate about. But I think the hardest part for me was just just being patient enough to do a good job in the schools that I was working at and and at the next PD someone says to another bloke, oh, you got a mental health day. This, this guy did a good job with us. Maybe you should try him. And I can honestly say that out of all the emails and all the letters and all the phone calls and uh, wh- whatever else you want to insert there that I've made to try and get this stuff going, I think just being patient, doing a good job and, and just letting people speak has been the most powerful part of, of uh, sort of sharing the message that I have with, with a whole heap of other schools. Yeah, and controlling what you can control, like that 90-minute session you do with a group of kids dominating that and then just letting that effect flow on. Yeah, exactly right, exactly right. I guess it's that, um, what's that 10,000-hour thing everyone always says before you become a master? Yeah, God um, well, yeah. Uh, it's, it's so true, even in this scene, not saying I'm a master by any stretch of the imagination, but just the amount of groundwork that you have to put in before you before you operate at a higher level. Man, the running world understands this better than anyone else on the planet. Yeah, but it's a gutsy move for you, though. Like, you could be sitting cruisy in a classroom job on 80000 bucks a year, not doing much, and, like, you've decided to go in an opposite direction because you're really passionate about it and and um, it really you get your kicks out of it, I guess. Yeah, I, I look at my wife, who's an amazing teacher. She teaches um, history and psychology, and she's passionate about it, and she makes the lessons engaging and the idea of writing reports just doesn't seem to bother her too much and parent teacher interview she gets excited about and she really genuinely wants to see progress in the kids understanding of history and I I just high five her I go babe I'm so glad teachers like you exist and I I compare that to how I was in a classroom and honestly man like you said it was sitting cruisy for me and it was it was waiting for the holidays it was waiting for the weekend and sure it was a comfortable job but it was just something that I felt like I was letting the students down um 
when I went in because I just knew I, I didn't really want to be there. It was a job for me, man. It just kept the paycheck coming in. It you know it kept Netflix operating and our internet bill paid and brought food to the table. But it was I feel like everyone I admire seems to have a, a moment in their life where they've had to make that risky move, whether it's, whether it's an athlete or a businessman or, or whatever. Just insert whatever it is you want there. Um, so so I, I became a little bit challenged and confronted because I was like, I don't just want to be one of these blokes who preaches one thing and lives a completely opposite message. I thought I'd much rather try and at least make the move for the next few years. Um, and if it works out, fantastic. And, and if it doesn't, well, at least at least I genuinely gave it a crack because the idea of failure absolutely does not bother me in any way. Um, I'd much rather uh, you know aim for Everest and fall short and be embarrassed and disappointed than than just try and climb up the K Street hill here in Trelgan. It's just the idea of falling flat on my face just really doesn't bother me if I feel as though I've done a, a good job at lining it up and having a real crack. And and I think that's um, one thing I'm really proud of myself is uh, for taking that uh, redirection from the teaching into the, the coaching scene because I feel like I've, I've been really honest with myself about what it is I'm trying to do. Yeah, love that. We'll get the quote when we do the PR for the show out of that last sentence, I reckon. That's a, that's a winner one so far. Yeah, beautiful, man. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, and probably that leads right onto the podcast. So you're talking about, like, Intention was the name of the podcast. You had some massive guests on there, like Courtney Carver, Sarah Knight, Ryan Nicodemus from The Minimalists. Like, talk me through how that launch went and uh, probably landed some of those guests and then, yeah, what's happened? Yeah, man. So uh, the the whole podcast idea for me was, was it was a 12-month experiment. It was something that I said, okay, for, for 2018 and most of 2018, I'm going to, I'm just going to give it a go because I was always really interested in speaking to these amazing guests. I was always really interested in just hearing the story and just the opportunity like what we're doing here, man, just to sit down and chat. And, and just I was really interested in hearing people's stories and what inspired them, what motivated them, what sort of, you know, just what it is that led them to where they are. And uh, so I thought, okay, what a great opportunity. And my uh, one of my best mates in, in Melbourne was running a podcast. And I remember sitting down with uh, my, my uncle who, who was a bit of an entre- entrepreneur and he said, mate, like, this is a great opportunity just to speak to with these with these good guests. I thought, yeah, fantastic. I'll, I'll do it. Uh, so about the middle of 20, uh, 2016, I started just to prepare for it and just try and get a bit of an understanding about what it is that you need to do to run a good podcast. And I was always a podcast fan and listen to, uh, like, it's almost become a cliche now when you talk about podcasts, but listen to your Joe Rogans and your Tim Ferrisses and um, your Lewis Howes. And it was just something I was fascinated in. So I, I kick-started I had about 10 podcasts up my sleeve before. Oh, no, no. I had only five podcasts up my sleeve before I got started. And um, I was really amazed at how responsive people that I considered to be a big name were. So uh, Ryan Nicodemus from The Minimalist was the was the first guy that I spoke to. And I, I love their podcast and I still love their work. And I just I went on their website and I found his email address. I thought, I'll just chuck it out there. My mum always said to me, mate, like the worst anyone can say is no. And I still, that's just a mantra that's just stuck in my mind. So I, I chuck an email to him. I said, mate, this is my idea. Um, like you're probably busy. Are you interested? And he's like, yeah, I want to. I was like, what? This is incredible. <laughs> Fantastic. And I was I was a little bit starstruck because I had been listening to a heap of his stuff um, in the lead up to it. And I just loved his message. So I think that gave me a lot of confidence just to, just to approach people. I found that people are a whole heap friendlier than what I realized. And then Sarah Knight, I saw her book everywhere. Absolutely. In every bookshop I went into, uh, it was just on the top shelf and, and it was, it always seemed to be in the middle of everyone's attention. So I thought, so I thought like, that's, that's really interesting. I wonder how this chick's done it. 
And I thought, come on, Pop, like, shoot her an email. So, so I just I shot her another email, and she, amazing. She just goes, yeah, like, I'm in. Let's let's do it. And, like, and obviously, um, amongst amongst these people, there's a there's a heap of people that tell you to piss off or they're not interested or send me your download numbers. And I was never really interested in chatting to the people who said send me your download numbers because I just I just it seemed a bit wanky to well, me. It's a crock anyway. And yeah, I don't know. It's hard to track your actual legitimate download numbers anyway. Like what we've got, we've got. I'm on this one, and then I'm on also a running podcast as well, like Inside Running. And when you're trying to track the legitimate numbers, it's really hard to. And you know, some sites tell you five thousand, the other site tells you five hundred, and um, yeah, it's really difficult to try and get an accurate number. Yeah, it's really frustrating because uh, like when we launched. Um, like I obviously went in a big way, and you get a few hundred downloads on the on the first couple. And then I was listening to Seth Godin talk a while ago, and he's like, "Oh, it's only about ten percent of your actual numbers that are actually listening to your podcast." I don't understand how it all works, mm-hmm. but um, but Eddie's, you're right. It's really difficult to try and to try and figure out the actual uh, sort of podcast stats. But yeah, we just go off iTunes charts now. Sorry to interrupt you. Like we're like, <laughs> as long as we're in the top two hundred or top fifty or whatever, as long as we're on that list, that means people are listening, and we'll just keep putting out content. Yeah, hundred percent, man, hundred percent. And it always just it always just struck me. It seemed that the the biggest names I'm doing like those inverted commas right here because you, mm. you can't see me. Um, the biggest names always seem to be the most responsive, which I always found really interesting. Um, as I said, obviously a lot of them tell you tell you no, but a lot of them tell you yes. And there was a bloke. Did you ever hear of Iron Cowboy, man? Oh, I listened to that podcast. I remember listening to it. Yeah, I uh, I've got an awesome memory. I can't remember much stuff like outside of. Uh, podcast world and just generally in my life but um i can yeah tell you exactly what run i was doing and where i was in a chukamoama when i was listening to that podcast isn't it funny i'm the same when i listen to podcasts it just takes you right back like a good song yeah. but man he was i think he was my favorite guest just because what he did absolutely blew my mind for your listeners it was 50 iron men in 50 days across 50 states um in the united states and he was one guy that i thought would just have no interest in in this little podcast that i'd got started um, and he got back to me and was just, just right into it. So I think um, you're probably the same, man. I was looking through some of your your guests the other day on your podcast. I was like, holy crap! Like you got a you got a few good names under your belt. Um, I was thinking that uh, yeah, it, it just always gave me a heap of confidence to just keep approaching people that I thought you know may or may not be interested, and not worry too much about whether they thought you're an idiot for for asking them to be on a little show. <laughs> And were you preparing like a proposal for him saying like these are the guests I've had on and like this is where I want to take it or was it just like a hey mate I've got this podcast are you keen kind of thing Man honestly it was it was more it was more what you just said like for the second thing then it was more just like mm-hmm. hey mate I've got a podcast cuz I, I was googling so much like how do you get guests on your show and there's some really good stuff out there but I would put in so much work putting a proposal together and I would send it to the person who wanted to be on my show, and they're like, oh, sorry, mate, I'm flat out. Yeah. And then I, I just I feel like there was no correlation between how much effort I put into the actual proposal and um, sort of the, the catch rate. Like, I, it could be a sentence. I think Ryan Nicodemus, I was, he was one of my first ones. So I said, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. And I was just really honest with him, just saying, hey, look, I don't have a huge audience. I don't have anything like that. I just I, I think um, your message is going to hit really well with the people that I think will, will listen to it. Um, and it, it, it just... Yeah, it really, it really stood out to me how little people seem to care about how fancy your email was. And I don't know what you're like, man, but when I get an email that's a page and a half long, I just skim it anyway. I'm like, oh, like, can you just shorten it? <laughs> yeah, and it's generic as. They've just changed the name so, on the top. So generic. Dear, I had, I've had so many emails that say, like, hey, Sarah, and then they come back to me like, oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to change the name. I'm like, no, don't worry about it. But I just I know what, I know what email was. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. See, I'm at the stage where I'm just still picking off like mates or mates of mates. So like, I haven't had to really get super professional. And uh, and I think that's what the listeners like that it's kind of a chilled out chat, and not me interviewing someone for the sake of being interviewed. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I saw you had um Jess Tringo, uh, the audio from her podcast. Uh, sorry, the audio from a conversation with her. And that was a, I thought that was a great get. And yeah, you, yeah, she's uh, she's been as well. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, yeah, Josh has been on like five times, and I'm kind of trying to. Yeah, so originally I started this one up, and there wasn't really a dominant kind of running one in Australia. And then all of a sudden, I just kept getting like mates who I knew who were, you know, making Australian teams and things like that. And then all of a sudden, I kind of was feeling like I had the responsibility to cover everything running, and I'd get emails about, you know, you should get this person on or that person on, and um, that's when we built the kind of inside running podcast and that's all the responsibilities kind of shifted over there to cover the whole Australian running scene and then I just kind of do what I want on this one and yeah Josh has been injured for a while no one's heard of him so we just do a do an hour chat and yeah I kind of I'm inspired a bit like Joe Rogan just brings his mates on and then the listeners get to know them like oh yeah I haven't heard from Josh in two months and oh there's a new episode with Josh up like yeah I think um just trying to build that community bit around the people I know that's really cool man I saw just before I uh before I came to my nan's house where I am right now, because he's got the most amazing Wi-Fi in Trelgan. Uh, but I was reading, uh, I was reading about that Inside Running podcast. So I saw that you did a had a bit of a chat with Dane Verway just a couple of days ago after the Cadbury Marathon or whatever. And I feel like uh, I I love the guys at Runners Trail because I feel like they they give you a really good opportunity if you're putting out good stuff with a crowd that they're they're really into. They they just seem to love it, and I know I'm all over Runners Club. I love their stuff. So have you got like a have you got connections with with those guys pretty closely? Yeah. So what it originated because um, do you remember Julian Spence or Brad Croker? Like you remember those two boys from the running scene? I remember both of their names. Yeah. So like Brad's a oh, twenty nine forty guy for ten k, and yeah three forty eight or something for fifteen hundred, but a bit older than us, and. Um, Julian kind of come from the ultra and kind of trail scene, but now he's banging out like 218 marathons. So I had um, both those guys on as guests on Tell Me Your Tales, and then we come up with a concept to do a road to the Berlin marathon. So um, we just kind of winged it a bit. We just talked about our training for the week. We're all going to run Berlin and started 12 weeks out and kind of created this reality kind of audio show. And that's when my numbers just started jumping because, like, all the diehard runners out there want to hear about splits and heart rate data. And and it's almost (laughs) like – and we were pretty well matched. Like, we weren't really sure who was going to win on race day. Um, So that started becoming my most downloaded show. And then, yeah, it got to the race. Brad got injured, which was good for content. I think I said, like, a week week before, I'm like, boys, someone needs to get injured. It's going to make it better. And then, uh, yeah, he was – so he he started, but it was just using it as his Sunday long run because he was only a couple of weeks back from – um, his injury, and then Julian and I were next to each other at 37k, and he pushed on and ran 218. I ran 220, and um, yeah, then the race was over, and we kind of like just missed catching up with each other every week, and we're getting a lot of emails about, you know, you've got to keep doing something because I think the Julian's a massive kind of a just a real hard nut, smart ass, like calls everyone out, um, and Brad's kind of real kind of a mind and uh yeah he's he's straight and narrow so i think the combination between the three of us and we just bag the shit out of each other like every week <laughs> so we thought oh maybe there's a market here and we're kind of getting good numbers that we could tell and yeah then we thought let's just do inside running and yeah that's just grown and grown and grown so and then the runners tribe boys picked that up and promoted it and they kind of host notes on their site every week now and uh, had a couple of sponsors come on board where they'll give us gear and then we'll wear their gear or test out their gels or whatever it is for the for the week and then um 
Yeah, so it's been good and kind of, yeah, got some good guests. We had, remember Chris Hamer? Oh, 100% yeah. remember Chris Hamer. He's a, he's a superstar. He's just been picked in the Com Games team, so he's coming up next week and uh, Lisa Waitman's coming up the week after that. We had Pat Tien and on the other week, because I think these guys don't really get opportunities to kind of have a 60-minute interview and share their story. So oh, we're kind that's... of, um, yeah, providing that. I got the biggest man crush on Paddy Tin, and it was so. I don't even know the guy very well, but I think I scared him. I was um, so I was sitting in a cafe in London, and I'd just been watching a few of his races and, and just cheering for him, like I do with all the Aussie blokes. And uh, and this bloke, I, I was sitting there having a coffee with some mates, and this bloke who, who he was just sitting right next to me, and I was like, I swear, that's Paddy Tin, and uh, I sort of I, I was like, oh, I don't want to embarrass him because he's sitting with a couple of good-looking girls. Shout out to Paddy Tiernan. Um, I was sit, he was sitting with a couple of good-looking girls. I thought, I don't want to cramp his style. Like, he, he, he was looking pretty cool, and I could see the girls were big fans of him. And I thought, stuff it. I've got to. I go, mate, what's your name? And he goes, yeah, Pat. And I go, oh, Paddy Tiernan, welcome to London. Um, dude, like, come and sit with us. And I just I just fanboyed because I'm such a big fan of his work. <laughs> I said, mate, just come and join us. Um, and he was getting ready to run a, a, a 3K the next day in Paris. And I go to him, mate, well, when you're back, here's my number. Put it in your phone. Call me. Let's do coffee. Like, I'll make this like your second home when you're here. He gets fantastic class. Like, I would love to. I'll call you next week. And the poor bloke, I've scared the shit out of him, I think. Um, I was I just, I just, was hanging on to the edge of that seat for the next week waiting for a phone call. Um, and I don't know what happened, but it never came. But I messaged him later. I go, mate, don't don't stress. Like, if you're, if you're worried about the fact that you haven't messaged me, um, I would never have messaged a bloke who just pretty much asked me out on a date, like, <laughs> no, at a cafe in London. But he's a, I reckon Paddy Tiernan is a superstar. I'm, I'm so pumped that you got him coming on. Yeah, well, he was on a couple of weeks ago. So go back and, um, yeah, Julian just had, like, an hour with him up at Falls Creek, and they just, similar to the chat we've just had, like, just, yeah, talking. And we kind of asked the questions that, I don't know, sometimes mainstream media wouldn't ask. So, like, we were asking about what's his night contract and how do you go about getting a contract and he's kind of managed by Nick Badeau but still coached by his American coach. So that's kind of different than most of those Melbourne track club boys and, yeah, kind of not beating around the bush and just kind of jumping straight into it. That's really cool. Man, you've got some good opportunities with that Melbourne track club as well. I can, I'm can. i so excited for, for Australian distance running at the moment. With um, So I used to train with Rod Griffin, who Stewie McSwain used to train with yeah. as well. And he was about four foot one um, when he was fourteen. And just to watch his forty-two like, kilos. Oh my god! I still reckon he's forty-two kilos. <laughs> but I've been uh, I've been so pumped just looking at the progress of these. But even Geordie Williams has made a massive comeback in the last couple of years. Like I just yeah, I, I, I sit by the results section of my computer every time there's a meet and just just cross my fingers and hope these boys do well. Even um even Craig Huffer, you should get him on, man, because he's a Craig, Craig's an old schoolmate of mine, ran 3.36 when he was 20, has just been smashed with injuries over the last eight years. Um, it just keeps coming back, keeps getting injured. And I think he's got a really cool mindset on on the whole running scene and just dealing with the, the, the you know, the obstacles that come your way. And he's just, I noticed a couple of nights ago, he uh, he ran 3.42 up at Hunter Track Classic. So I've got my fingers crossed that, that he can get some good training under his belt and, and, and start, you know, really ripping out some big times again. Yeah, well, he's going around at Vic Countries this weekend because uh, Julian was hoping to take the double, the 5 and 10K double, and then he looked up the entry list and he's like, yeah, oh, shit, Craig Huffer. What? <laughs> he's just racing this small, low-key meet in Ballarat. He's, uh, yeah, he's not happy about that. 
what's he racing? The what? He's racing the eight, uh, the five, fifteen hundred and five KZ. Oh no, he's definitely doing the five against Julian. So that, yeah, a two maybe is doing the fifteen as well. But yeah, I couldn't see him stepping up to a ten k on the track. Surely not. Surely not. I still see him as too good over eight and fifteen to go too far away from those. Yeah, but what about with you? Like, obviously you're still following the sport, but any chance you'll come back or park runs on a Saturday or? Man, it's so funny you just mentioned park runs. I'll answer the second question. There's there's zero chance I'll come back on a competitive level. I um like I I love 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 the sport still. It's it's still my favorite sport. Like I I, I yeah I love it. I still go running a few times a week and. Um, but my wife the other day at Saturday night, she said to me down here in Trelgan, she goes, babe, there's a park run on tomorrow. And it's like 200 meters from my house where it starts. So I thought, oh, we've got to go do the park run. So I said to Jesse, babe, like we'll, we'll do it together. Um, anyway, just before the, the race started, I go, oh, all right, oh yeah, babe, I'll see you at the end. I'm just going to, I'm just going to work into it. So I, um, <laughs> Looking like the course record and stuff like that. <laughs> Nothing like that. I came, it was, it was funny. I was, I was running with a group of girls for the first couple of Ks. And then I just I get too competitive and started just trying to hammer and like a bloke still beat me but pretty comfortably but it's just it's just so funny just how that uh that sort of adrenaline kicks in once you start running again you you feel like even though I'm not running as fast like every emotion that goes through my body is still the same yeah and park runs so I had the CEO Tim O'Berg on maybe two weeks ago and he just shared the story of how it came to Australia and the numbers they're getting every week and how it's changing people's life it's just uh just an amazing like yeah thing it's doing for the sport and people's health in general is he a british bloke no he's an aussie but he was living over there for a while and then um yeah moved back to australia and he's like i've got to get this started here and then yeah next minute there's 250 of them all right that's incredible man well 250 different park runs yeah i think maybe 264 to be exact i probably do have his notes sitting through here somewhere but yeah and he was amazing to talk to like yeah if you get if you're looking for a podcast episode to listen to not trying to plug my own work because he he bangs on the whole time he was that uh, really easy to interview he's yeah. uh yeah an amazing person and really well spoken and yeah share some really good tales about it that's um, it's, honestly, man, it's like church for runners. I couldn't believe how similar it felt just to a church the other day when we were standing there. Everyone, like, you get welcomed when you walk in. If it's your first day, you have to put your hand up, everyone claps. Mm. Then you all do the run and give each other a hug afterwards, it, like not in a creepy way, but in a sweaty way. And then everyone goes out for coffee after and, and just chills out. It's a, it's a perfect setup for, uh, for anyone just looking for a bit of a social community that loves running, hey? Oh, 100%. I read a blog on it the other day, and it was like, it was titled something like, it's not actually about the run. Like, the run's the most, the least, the least important part. Um, it's about all that community stuff and having the coffee and high-fiving someone and checking the results an hour later. Yeah, bloody oath, man. That was a good vibe. It was a good buzz down there. Hey, mate, you've interviewed some of these massive guests and stuff, and now that we're talking about, um, you know, intentional living and kind of books you've read and interviews that you've conducted, have you got any recommendations for the listeners out there to kind of for them to hit up yeah 100 percent. so I'll, I'll give you a couple of podcasts and a couple of books um uh, a couple of podcasts i think the minimalist is is like a really cool like their first 50 podcasts in in my opinion are the best um they have like a certain topic that they speak on each week and they, they just really help you work through what's essential in your life and and what's extra so how to how to get rid of the extra so you can focus on that essential and i, I found that really really helpful uh, they were speaking about the fact that, you know, the average American, I assume it's the same in Australia, American household has over 300,000 items, which just sounds ridiculous and hard to believe. Um, but when you actually look at how many of those that you use, it's it's obviously far less than that. And I think 
Uh, I, I just found that really, really inspiring. Obviously, you mentioned Joe Rogan. Have you? Sorry to interrupt, but before we move on from them, have you had a crack at their challenge? Like, hey, you throw something, or don't throw it out, or donate, or get rid of it from your house one item a day, and you just keep adding it throughout the month? Well, dude, this is so. This is how I discovered the minimalist. So, everyone for my whole life, like everyone I know, just gives me a hard time because I just I cannot stand clutter just anywhere. Like, you go to my work desk or whatever, and there's just nothing on it. Um, I just I couldn't stand it. I had no idea what it was, but I just I just thought I was a weird OCD sort of bloke. And uh, I, I was just searching on the the internet a couple of years ago and came across their stuff. Um, and I don't know, I must have accumulated a bit of stuff up until this point, and I found that game that you're speaking about and jumped right on board. I like cleared out a shed and cleared out a bedroom and chucked out half my wife's stuff, which fellas like if you listen, you know you're smarter <laughs> than me. Don't recommend it. She was very disappointed. Uh, put the marriage on the rocks. We've come back. We're strong. But <laughs> there was a couple of there was a couple of days there where I was just on a, a rampage throwing out uh, my stuff. So yeah, man, I uh, I know that game well, and I, I I I love it. What is it? Thirty days of minimalism, I think it's called. Yeah, but it gets tough towards the end. Like it gets to day like twenty five, and you've already chucked out twenty four things a day before, and you're walking around the house as you said, just trying to find stuff to to put in a in a tub and take to the salvos or whatever you're doing with it. It's so true. Man, I'm a massive cheat as well because I figured out what, it's like 500 things that you, you sell, donate or trash by the end of the month. So I thought, stuff it. Like, it's January the 1st. What I'm going to do, I'm just going to try and chuck out as much crap from my house today as well as what I can. So I think that really didn't go down well with Jessie because she feels like you're just you're chucking out half your house. So I think the, the, just the gradual process of getting a little bit more each day is probably safest. But I definitely think by like day twenty five, you you certainly would be starting to struggle with uh with things to throw out that's not your dog or like your computer or, or whatever. Yeah, but it makes you ask that question like, is this really important to me, or like, could I sell this on eBay for twenty bucks and put it straight on the mortgage or do the supermarket shopping or something like that? And yeah, you have to go to a real deep place to to understand the way you're living your life. It's so true, and one thing they helped me realize as well, which actually helped me when I made the move into working for myself is so many of we go through a full-time job which is which is cool like a lot of us love our jobs or whatever but a lot of us are just going to those jobs to make sure that we keep getting this money to pay for things that we keep buying that we really didn't need and i think what they helped me realize is if you get rid of all the excess like a, a lot of the time you don't need as much cash coming in as what you might have just to keep you afloat and it opens up the option to maybe you know have a have a day uh, away from your normal job, if that's an option for you to be able to focus on something you're passionate about or something that you've been saying for years you would like to learn. And um, yeah, I think if you ask me in the last two years or last five years, like, who's had the biggest impact on the way like I've sort of structured my house and, and things like that, I've been a big fan of yeah the, the minimalists. And and just have you heard of Marie Kondo? No, I haven't. She's a Japanese like tidying up chick, and I have. I'm so embarrassed to admit it because I feel like it's such a chick thing to be interested in. Um, even my wife's embarrassed when I tell her about it, but. Um, no judgment. Uh, there's a she, she's a, yeah a J- Japanese tidying up. Coat. Yeah, and she got the book like um, yeah I know the book you're talking about, and I thought it was a bit too chick heavy to pick it up at the airport oh, the other week. Oh, way too chick heavy. Don't do it. Let me just <laughs> summarize it for you. Or just go to go to a blog and just type in like Mari Kondo's message in dot points, um, and, and just clear your history after. You look at it. <laughs> Just clear your history, but she's um she's cool, bro. She's really cool. I've never been so interested in how to fold my shirts in my life. Yeah, right. And you were going to say Joe Rogan before you got a bit of inspiration from him. Yeah, just I just love Joe Rogan. Um, it's 
I just he, I, feel, I find his just whole approach to life really inspiring. I, I love his openness to ideas. I love how he's happy to be smashed on something that he believes that's wrong. I love how he will change his mind if he's proven wrong. Um, I also love the fact that he's had a couple of episodes where he's been an absolute dickhead to the guests, and like everyone's called him on it, and he goes like, "You're all right. I was a dick." Um, I just I, I feel like he's uh, he, he's almost like a mentor for so many people our age all around the world because you just look at a bloke like that and you're like, "This guy's incredible." Um, Dude, check out this guy, um, Jordan Peterson. Have you ever heard of Jordan yeah, Peterson? Yeah, definitely heard his name, but not familiar with his work. So he was a guest on on Joe Rogan for the first time about a year ago, um, and he actually came into the spotlight, like trigger warning, as a as a bloke who, who was refusing to use or address people by gender pronouns, which sounds like, depending on what side of the fence you're on, like it can sound really offensive, but that's his sort of introduction, but he's so so much more than that just the way he interprets uh, the way he speaks about um spirituality and the way he, he's like a coach to guys our age um just like like joe rogan man he's it's no matter what i say i can't do justice for him he's just got a book coming out this month called 12 rules for life which i, I can't wait to get my hands on and uh and, and anyone else who's interested should grab one as well because he's just a he's a professor from the university of toronto who's just a just a freak man like i just I'm rambling, but just Googling because you'll love him. Well, that's a good thing about like when you discover new podcasts and then you feel like you hit a bit of a gold mine when you look and there's like, you know, and there'll be listeners out there that can go back and listen to your 42 episodes and um, yeah, really find some good interviews and some good content in there. But I've listened to a bit of Joe Rogan, but you constantly just go through and just look for the names and then download those shows rather than just hitting up the current show each week. Yeah, it's so true. Who else do you listen to, man? Are you a, are you a fan of any other big ones or any others at all? Yeah, um, uh, what's uh, Marathon Talk was the one that because I have to do most of my training by myself. I just live in a town of twenty thousand people, and um, yeah, there's a couple of triathletes who can run at a similar jogging pace. But majority of my work, I just put in a Joe Rogan conversation, and it gets me through a two or three hour long run pretty easy. But um, Rich Roll, I got into him a bit at the start there, and. Yeah, it probably depends on the guest if I download that one. Um, Marathon Talk was good. The Minimalists are good. Yeah. Um, but there's so many more popping up now. It's just uh, it's awesome. It's kind of, um, yeah, I just yeah, just kind of pick and choose a bit. Like I'm not really religious in always listening to every show that everyone puts out. But, um, yeah, I think the guests have a bit to do with it. And then, yeah, just, just pick and choose. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get it. Um Dude, sorry I keep rambling. I'll just tell you one more for anyone who's interested. I was actually, I'll tell you this because I was about to take a screenshot and post it on on Instagram. I'm 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 a big fan of Audible. Like like you, I love going out for the runs and just listening to whatever it is I'm listening to. And and books just happens to be so easy now. Um, I'm listening to one by a guy called Rich Raw, um, not Rich Roll. Rich Raw. He's a Franciscan priest who's like so on the fringes of the church. And if someone had told me that five years ago, like listen to this priest book, I would have been like, piss off, mate. I've got no interest in this. But he's uh, like the minimalist and like Murray Kondo, it's uh, the spirituality of subtraction. So he speaks about how so many of us find our purpose and our meaning in the things that we accumulate or the titles that we have or the status that we have or how much money or, or whatever it is that we, we clip, uh, throw our identity on. And he speaks about just this spirituality that's found in just letting go of that excess like the minimalist and finding value that we already have within us now that can't be stripped away from us no matter what happens to what we own. Yeah, and their big thing as well is, um, you know, when people ask you what you do for a job, and it's just like that direct um, comparison about how much money you make per year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if you ask people what they're passionate about, it really kind of tells you what's happening in their life. 
this opens a whole different conversation hey yeah yeah it's good what about books mate you got any books to uh recommend other than that one you just dropped yeah so there's a book um i can never say this guy's name right uh it, i think it was it was i can't even tell you when it was written i i listened to it i'm a, as i say a massive audible fan i listened to it at the end of last year it's called the painted bird so it's have you ever heard of it no nah, definitely um, not but yeah good title yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's about this. It's a it's a, a story about a kid uh, during World War Two and just the struggles and the the just the the problems that he faces. It's just it, it's an incredible. It's super confronting. It's really horrible. It's really um, it, it's just yeah. It's it's pretty gruesome, but it just gives you a real appreciation on on where we are and what we have. And I, I think for me, that's that's one of the biggest things. A, a real big perspective change. Um, also. I just finished a book called The Rum Diaries by, by Hunter S. Thompson, mainly because of the fact that I've just always said I want to listen to some of his books and I haven't. That was another one I listened to recently. I, I wrote a blog post, man, which I can't think off the top of my head, but I wrote down 20 books um, that have been the most influential to me. So if you just like Google Tyson Popplestone books, um, that blog post should come up and that'll give you a few more because off the top of my head, I'm just I'm struggling to think of a few. Yeah, and with the blog, like you're doing that every day, a blog a day. Yeah, I'm doing a I'm doing a weekday a weekday post from now on just because uh, I think I, I love Seth Godin and I love his blogs and even I don't read his every day, which is definitely no reason um, to to not post every day. But I just I like the idea of um, just having a having a few days. So each weekday, everyone will get a blog post from me that signed up for. Um, that signed up for that and yeah it's not everyone's cup of tea some people don't like it so much some people want it more but i just thought at least if i just say hey this is what i'm doing it's a weekday post if you want it hey it's it's coming to you if you're not interested don't don't stress you can you can unsubscribe or whatever but um i, I just love that it's a it was an opportunity just to point people that i speak to towards when i leave because I'll, I'll speak a message and then people go oh like where can i follow this up and i'm like oh, i've got got nothing like i might be speaking at your school again in six months but that's it so it was just nice to, to start that up and it's a, a little reminder to myself and anyone who's interested just to you know try and value the things that are really important and uh and, and trying to let go of all the extra stuff do you find that challenging to bang one out like five times a week well not well sometimes sometimes so they're very short like i know i know you get the yeah posts they're good yeah they're really short posts and i do that deliberately just because um just, just personally online, I don't, I don't read a heap of like the really long articles. It's just not my preference online. I prefer if I'm going to do that, I will just grab a book. Um, I've got friends who do love it, but for me, I just love a short, sharp, just a thought for the day, essentially. Um, so, what I'll do is because they're so short, I might just sit down or I'll have an idea as I'm running or I have a thought and uh, and I'll just jot down a note on where to take that potential blog post. So, some days I might write like ten different posts. And other days I might write zero. So I've been on holiday for the last two weeks over in Vietnam and I didn't write the whole time I was there, but I, I had a big bank of them saved up. Um, so it actually, it sort of balances itself out. When you've got nothing some days, you've usually, um, you know, weighted the scale up the other end with a few just to just to keep them coming. Yeah, beautiful. And where can people follow you, mate? Like, we'll get to the final question in a minute. But um, yeah, if people like what they hear today, where can they keep in touch? Man, just TysonPopplestone.com. It is a real name. It's a ridiculous surname, but I promise you'll find um all the stuff that i'm about just there we'll add all in the show notes and stuff but the last question i always finish off with is have you got you did touch on a mantra earlier on and i'm not sure if that's going to be the same answer to this question but have you got a mantra or philosophy or life quote that you you try to live your life by 
Man, I was uh, so this book, the the spirituality of subtraction or letting go. Just just this morning, he said something that struck me, and I don't want to be too preachy or whatever, but it's just a it just hit a sweet spot for me. He says, uh, he says, uh, work as if it's up to God, and pray as if it's up to you. And and the context of that saying is essentially so many of us find all our worth and our value in how much work we get done. And I think for me, listen to Tim Ferriss and Gary Vee and and these kind of blokes, I can just get so caught up in the hustle that I think all the results are going to be dictated by me. And if, unless I take every opportunity, I'm never going to, you know, reach the level that I'm capable of. And I just, I like the idea of just saying, hey, you know what, like uh, whether or not it's even true, it's just, it's comforting. Um, it work as if it's up to God. So, hey, just just chill. Just like do the work you got to do. Don't stress about the results. But uh, hey, just just keep coming to him with your request and, and, and just keep saying your stresses, your worries. And for me, that just uh, that just levels me out a little bit and just gives me some comfort in the uh, in the highs and lows of the journey. Yeah, I love that. Even like relation to running, like just trust the process and not the outcome. Like put in the work and do it all and then see what that gets you. Don't be disappointed if it's not the time and uh, put all your hopes into one basket kind of thing. Yeah, 100%, man, 100%. Dude, I was meant to – sorry, I've been talking so much that I forgot to say to you what a bloody good race that was the other day, that half marathon. 60 – was it 67 minutes you ran? Yeah, I've been quicker than that, though. I've ran 66, 28 before, but, um, yeah, I've got a Japanese marathon in three weeks, so that was a bit of a, a, a controlled hit-out, so I'm confident I can uh, go a bit quicker than that if I had to, but, yeah, yeah, in a good spot at the moment. Holy crap. So have you got any uh, Have you got any little predictions or goals for the marathon, or are you just keeping the cards close to your chest? Well, it's a funny one. I was originally going to go over and do Lake BY Marathon, and... Um, that's maybe in five weeks' time, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Wayne Lardin. He owns a Sydney Marathon and a few events around Australia. But, um, yeah, he sent me an email yeah, two, three weeks ago just saying we've got a spot at uh, this Japanese marathon as it's a sister race for the Australian team, uh, for the Sydney Marathon, and they invite one Australian over to do it each year, and it's kind of all-inclusive, and they'll look after you. And do you, oh. want, to, do you want to be the guy? Tom Decano was going to do it, but he just got picked for the Australian team for the World Half Marathon champ. So... I just jumped at that opportunity. So uh, the yeah. the training block was, yeah, at that stage I was eight weeks out from the marathon and then I uh, had to change it to five weeks out. So, yeah, I'm pretty confident so far. And I don't know, I yeah ran 2.20.15 at Berlin and that was a bit frustrating to to be a 2.20 guy and not a 2, not a 2.19.59 guy. I would have liked that a bit better. But um, in saying that, I was going for the Con Games qualifier of 2.19. So it wasn't like I was trying to run 2.20 and then missed it. I was trying to run 2.19 and then popped and got to the finish line. But, um, yeah, we'll see so what happens. Yeah, 2.19 is the Commonwealth Games qualifier. Yeah, but it wouldn't have got you on the t- team. Like, who we got? Uh, Liam Adams... Michael Shelley and Chris Hamer, like 2.12, 2.13 kind of guys. But it would have been nice just to say you've you've, you've run a qualifying time. And it's, they've relaxed it a bit. Like back in the day when you were running, it would have been like 2.12 and we wouldn't have been taking guys to some championships because no one would run the time. Yeah, bloody hell, man. That's exciting. I can't wait to uh, to check out Runners Trouble and see how that one goes. Yeah, it'd be good. And that's <laughs> good for that other podcast as well because we kind of all have different races and the, the listeners are kind of on the journey and, yeah, really focused in on what happens in our own running as well, which is good fun. All right. I wish I bloody heard about this a little bit earlier so I could have gone the whole journey because I feel like I know I, I'm too close to the actual outcome to, to join now, aren't I? Yeah, well, it's funny. Some <laughs> people are like, oh, we've just, just like, yeah, some of the road to Berlin stuff, like, yeah, everyone knows the result, but people go back and listen to it as if it's um, as if they don't know and kind of. And some people have been re-listening to it. I'm just like, really? There must be. We've got a guy in Norway, Christian from Norway. He's gone back and listened to it all twice, and uh, 
Yeah, people, and we had a different focus every episode as well. So we might talk about nutrition or injuries or, um, you know, specific training and our coach's relationship every week would have a different theme. So I think people get value out of going back and listening to that stuff as well. Yeah, nice, man. That's unreal. Yeah, it's a good little, uh, good little project. But, mate, I've taken up way too much of your time for a, uh, what is it, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday. I'm on school, yeah, on yeah, school holidays. I keep forgetting what day of the week it is. I think it's safe to say I've done most of the talking today, so I apologise if I've taken up too much of yours. No, nah, mate, we're really inspired <laughs> by your messages, and, yeah, we could uh, definitely do a part two someday, I'm sure. Hey, I mean, I mean, you just tell me when, bro. Yep, good luck with all the things you got going on, and, yeah, thanks for sharing your stories and your tales with the listeners today. Too easy, brother. Thanks, man.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.